Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This On Air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full-service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Our topic today, the Massachusetts Independent Contractor Law and what it means for you. Our guest, Jonathan Siegel, a partner in the Labor, Employment, and Employee Benefits Group at the firm of Myrick O'Connell. He advises clients on a broad range of employment issues, including employment and severance agreements, handbooks and policies, and terminations and layoffs. Thanks so much, Jonathan, for being with us on the On Air program. Great to be here, uh, Howard. Thanks very much for having me. So this is kind of hot off the press, and not just because it's 90 degrees at uh, press time, but on July 14th, just a couple of days ago, the Massachusetts Attorney General reported that it was filing a lawsuit against both Uber and Lyft for violation of the Massachusetts Independent Contractor Law. So the first question I'd have, Jonathan, is why did the Attorney General file that lawsuit? So the Attorney General uh, in Massachusetts is responsible for enforcing our wage and hour laws. And so they can do that in a number of ways. Uh, they, they undertake investigations and audits, and they can also file lawsuits. And in Massachusetts, there's also a private right of action. Uh, after you file with the attorney general, you can just go ahead and proceed to court and uh, try to pursue whatever your claims are under the Massachusetts uh, wage and hour law. You can be a, an employee or former employee who's owed wages, as the case may be, can uh, sue and potentially obtain, if, if, if it's determined that they're owed money, they're owed wages, uh, triple damages and attorney's fees automatically. So if you violate wage and hour laws, including overtime laws in Massachusetts, there is potentially a uh, pretty significant negative consequences. So that just gives you a little bit of background about the attorney general's role in our wage and hour laws in Massachusetts. So in this case, they, and, and they've, I think, been looking at Uber and Lyft for a while, as other states have. It's, it's already happening in California. So uh, Uber and Lyft are dealing with, with it there, too, because California is another state that has some pretty strict laws in terms of protecting employees and specifically wage and hour laws. So Attorney General Healy decided that based on the business models of Uber and Lyft, uh, where they are all, uh, all, all drivers are contractors. They're not employees. So based on the application of the law to, to those facts, and some additional facts I can get into in a little bit, that those companies are misclassifying their Massachusetts drivers and that they should be hired as and, and treated as W-2 employees. That makes perfect sense, Jonathan. So that would lead me to my next question, which is, what are the main provisions of the Massachusetts Independent Contractor Law? In order to be classified as, as a contractor and not employee under that law, the worker must be free from the direction and control of the, of the company. The services that the worker performs must be outside the usual course of the company's business. And finally, the worker must be customarily engaged in an independently established trade, occupation, or business of the same nature as the service performed for the party. So under this law and under other similar laws I'll talk about uh, shortly, direction and control of the individual's uh, work and work performance is the linchpin. That's the key factor here. But it's not just that, right? Under, under this particular 
Massachusetts law, these other factors have to be there as well. So in addition to being free from direction and control, the work that's being performed really has to be outside the usual course of, of the company's business. So if you think about any of us that might hire someone to come to our house to perform a service, a plumber, an electrician, right? Those are contractors that we engage. They're not our employees. They're engaged in a completely independent trade, right? And, and the same is true if you look at it from a business's standpoint. If the company, let's say, let's say a company that manufactures widgets uh, wants to bring in someone just to consult on their on their marketing or consult on their on their IT system or something like that, that's not part of the core business of making widgets. It's something ancillary to that. And so the other criteria are met, there's going to be a a better chance that you can classify that individual or individuals as as contractors. So where employers often make mistakes is that the work that they're engaging contractors to do are really not outside the scope of, of their business. And, you know, the individual is not working, for example, for a separate company where they're an employee of someone's, right? If you think about a staffing agency, you engage a staffing agency and those workers work right alongside your W-2 employees. So they're doing the core business uh, that you're in. But the reason that that's okay is because somebody's employing them, right? They're a W-2 employee of that entity. So if you've got a business-to-business relationship like that, then that's okay. So where employers in Massachusetts get in trouble is if they bring on an individual who really what they're doing is part and parcel of what the company does. And, and oftentimes, I've seen this happen where they're providing services as a, as a contractor that are very similar or the same as the, the company's W-2 employees. And so that really, that's obviously a huge indicator that the person really should be an employee, you know, classified properly as an employee and not a contractor. So W-2 as opposed to 1099 in the tax form parlance, so to speak. So Jonathan, why does the Attorney General of Massachusetts believe that Uber and Lyft drivers are and should be classified as employees rather than contractors? Well, that's a good question, Howard, and it's based on a number of facts that they point to. And these things often, it's a totality of the circumstances and facts. And in this case, the attorney general basically has said, look, these drivers are not as independent as they may appear to be. So in other words, Uber and Lyft uh, is claiming that they, they get to choose their own schedules. They can, they can work as few or as many hours as they wish. But in reality, they closely monitor the driver's activities through their apps, and they offer financial incentives to induce the drivers to work shifts that directly benefit the companies. They also penalize drivers for not accepting enough rides, canceling too many rides, uh, failing to maintain customer satisfaction ratings, and those types of things. So basically, from the attorney general's standpoint, is you can't have your cake and eat it too. I mean, there's a certain level of autonomy with, with these drivers, but at the end of the day, there are still enough parameters around their conduct and their, their business activity and their job duties where really, again, from the attorney general's perspective, Uber and Lyft have quite a bit of direction and control over their work. In terms of the second part of the independent contractor test, the core business of Lyft and Uber is to provide ride-sharing services, right? And that's what these drivers do. 
So it's not like there's some ancillary workers or, or workers providing services ancillary to their core business. This is really the heart of their business. So again, you, you have to, in order to, to properly classify someone as a, as a contractor, you've got to meet each of the three parts of the independent contractor test. And again, according to the attorney general, Uber and Lyft does not. And therefore, all of those drivers have been misclassified uh, and um, the attorney general wants those companies to comply with mass law by hiring them all as uh, employees. And by the way, it doesn't matter. Uh, this comes up sometime too, if a client says, well, they're only going to work a few hours this week and maybe next week, uh, maybe a little bit more. And then it, it's, or, or maybe they have autonomy in, t- in terms of their hours, but that doesn't win the day for you because you still have to look at the other factors. And look, uh, lots of employers employ people on a per diem basis or on a flex schedule or a part-time schedule. Uh, in and of itself, that doesn't change the nature of the relationship of the employment relationship versus contractor. So given everything that we've just heard, Jonathan, what if an individual and a company sign an agreement by which both parties agree that the individual will be a contractor and not an employee? Does that affect the law's application at all? Uh, it doesn't. So, you know, the law in Massachusetts law, particularly wage and hour law, is very strict in terms of what it refers to as special contracts. So, in other words, you can't enter into an agreement that circumvents the law. The same way you can't say, all right, Howard, uh, we have a job for you, and this is a tough job market here, so I know you really want this job, but we're in some financial uh, straits right now, so we can't afford to pay you minimum wage, which, by the way, in, in Massachusetts is twelve seventy-five an hour. We can pay you $10 an hour. Would that, would that be okay? And you say, sure, that, that works for me, and you sign something because you want the job, even though you both agreed to it. It's illegal because you've now circumvented what the law requires, uh, even if it's by mutual agreement. The same is true for a contractor agreement. Often what I'll, what I'll hear from a client is, well, look, we've got an agreement and this individual doesn't want to be an employee. The person would prefer to be a contractor, so no harm, no foul, right? And I say, well, wrong, because you can't, you can't contract around the law that way. And why do individuals sometimes prefer to be contractors? Uh, because they might take tax deductions for being self-employed, that kind of thing, or, or at least believe they've got more autonomy that way, whatever the case may be. But if they don't meet that test uh, that's set forth under the law, then the agreement is of no consequence. It's, it's going to be void. So, and, and just, just to uh, make this point too, Howard, the reason that you know, why does the attorney general care? I mean, obviously, if they, they believe the law is being violated, but how, how can these drivers be harmed if they are contractors as opposed to employees? Well, employees generally have a lot more rights than contractors and also are entitled to more benefits uh, than, than a contractor is, particularly under Massachusetts law. So, for example, the sick time law that requires that employees, but not contractors, just employees, be provided with at least 40, uh, 40 hours of sick time each year. Well, if, if someone is being classified incorrectly as a contractor, then they're not getting that benefit. Uh, in addition, the employer isn't paying into unemployment, uh, you know, paying unemployment taxes for that individual, social security taxes for that individual. Uh, it's a way to get around providing health insurance. So there are a lot of potential negative consequences to someone who is 
misclassified as a and treated as a contractor when they really should be a W-2 employee. Now, in representing employers almost exclusively, Jonathan, do you come across many situations where employers want to or try to classify workers as contractors instead of employees? You know, I'm not sure I would say many, Howard, but I do from time to time, particularly since wage and hour laws have tightened up, both this independent contractor law uh, and also automatic triple damages and attorney's fees, which law has been in effect since 2008. I think Massachusetts employers, at least many of them, have kind of figured it out. Uh, But it's interesting. It's still, you know, I still, from time to time, I will get this kind of an inquiry or request for an agreement in this situation. And, and I do provide contractor agreements if I'm advising that it's proper to classify the individual as a contractor. But when someone asks me for an agreement, I will always go through the analysis with the client and say, look, let's make sure we are really doing the right thing here and not misclassifying them. And I advise accordingly. And hopefully they listen to me. They may not always, and because you know, employers often they want to classify someone as a contractor so that they don't need to pay benefits, etc. And um, that's just not kosher uh, in many situations. And it's just very difficult in this state, and I would say California, New York, probably those are the three most employee-friendly states in the country. But Massachusetts has been over the last, let's say, decade to. 15 years, very vigilant about enforcing these wage notes. So, uh, yeah, I still come across those situations and I have to advise accordingly. Jonathan, what are the potential negative consequences to misclassifying a worker as a contractor? The first thing is, you know, you look at that uh, situation uh, that could result in a violation of the independent contractor law, because that, that's a wage and hour issue, right? So let's start there, if someone is misclassified and, and not being paid as they should have been, for example, minimum wage, and uh, if, they're, if, if they would be classified as a non-exempt employee, in other words, eligible for time and a half overtime, uh, that can be a negative consequence as well, because they're, again, they're being treated as a contractor. Usually that means paying someone an hourly rate or a weekly or monthly fee even where wage and hour records aren't being kept, which is a separate violation, but also failure to, to pay properly. So that's, that's kind of the first significant pitfall, but there are others based on other laws. So um, another would be state and federal tax law. If you misclassify someone as a contractor, you know, you issue them a 1099, but what are you not doing? You're not withholding you're not, as I mentioned before, you're not paying into unemployment and social security. So there are other implications beyond just that state wage and hour law that could have negative consequences uh, for that misclassification. Another one is workers' comp. Uh, if you, if someone really should be an employee, then they should be protected by the, and frankly, it protects both employer and employee, the workers' comp law, which doesn't apply to contractors. So if someone is misclassified, and and gets injured, well, your workers' comp carrier may not cover that person. Uh, Another one is unemployment compensation. And by the way, each of these laws have their own test to determine whether someone is properly classified as a contractor versus an employee. I would say the Massachusetts independent contractor law is probably the most strict, but you know, all of them have direction and control somewhere in their, you know, in in the, the criteria. But 
they, they have some slight variations. So you could be violating multiple laws, state and federal, simultaneously uh, if you don't classify uh, folks correctly. When they, in other words, classify them as contractors really should be employees. So there's a host of potential legal violations that could get an employer into trouble for misclassification. So, Jonathan, this kind of begs the question, when a company engages a worker and properly classifies an individual or the individual's company as a contractor, is it prudent, would you say, to have a written agreement between the company and the individual or a company which employs the individual that this person or entity is a contractor? It is. I mean, that's exactly what uh, should be done. And, you know, I I do see it done, uh, you know, most of the time, right? In other words, once we determine that an individual, individuals are properly being classified properly as a contractor as opposed to employee, it's usually memorialized in some way. It's just not always done in in the best way it can be done. And so I do think if you're going to engage a contractor and whether it's business to business, right, where the individual performing the services is an employee of someone like a staffing company, or if it's just with an individual, but you are, you know, you, you've kind of gone through the analysis and you say, you know what, we're, I think we're on solid ground classifying them as a contractor. It is, in my view, very prudent to still have an agreement which spells out the terms of that engagement and has particular language in it, including indemnification language and other language that you may want to include in the agreement that just governs the parameters of the, of the relationship of how the person's going to be paid and uh, so on and so forth. So to answer your question, yes, it is absolutely. I think it's, it's uh, important that even when you've, when you've classified someone properly as a contractor to have an agreement that spells out the terms of that engagement. We've been talking with Myrick O'Connell, partner and labor employment and employee benefits attorney, Jonathan Siegel. Jonathan, how can folks contact you with questions or concerns about this issue or any other issue? Well, they can Call me at 508-860-1474 or email me at jsigel at myrickoconnell.com. And they can certainly visit Myrick O'Connell's website and look me up. And my bio's there with my contact info and uh, happy to assist when I can. Thanks so much, Jonathan Siegel. Uh, We really appreciate your being on the On Air with Myrick O'Connell program. Thank you so much. Thank you, Howard. On behalf of attorney Jonathan Siegel and the law firm of Myrick O'Connell, I'm Howard Kaplan. Thanks for joining us. Take care and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. 